Well, take your Bibles and turn to Romans 13. So Romans chapter 13, we are going to read verses 11 through 14. So Paul writes, besides this, you know that the time, you know, sorry, besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. So let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. So last week, we concluded looking at verses 8 through 10, where in that passage, Paul exhorts us to do three things or to consider three things. First, that love is the debt that no one stops owing. So where he says, pay, you know, owe no one anything except to love each other. He also uh, exhorts us to consider that the entire Old Testament, the law and the prophets, all of it, is summed up in one word, and that word is love, or as he says, love your neighbor as yourself. All of the law, all of the prophets, Jesus says that too, where he says, these two great commandments, upon these two great commandments depend the law and the prophets. That word depend means it's like a hanger. You can hang, you can support them based on these two commandments. And then finally he concludes by saying that love fulfills the law. If you can love your neighbor as yourself perfectly, if you can love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, you have fulfilled the law. That's the point that Paul makes. Now, none of this should come as a surprise to us who have been in the church for some time, because as we've been saying, Jesus does summarize the Ten Commandments into two. Love God, love others. We are all aware of that. When we read the law here responsibly, we read the Ten Commandments, And then after that, we read Jesus' summarization of the Ten Commandments. And again, since the entire Old Testament is either expounding the law, describing the law, or using the law to correct the people, it is not an exaggeration to say that love fulfills the law. Now, I could say that, and we could all agree to that, but sometimes it still seems hard to believe that at times, because as we mentioned last week, it can be difficult to see the law as an expression of love, especially when the law seems so harsh. It seems so absolute, right? Do this. Don't do that. You sound sound like a legalist when you start talking and just start talking about the law all the time. You know, don't do that. Don't do this. Do that. But again, I urge you, to consider the Ten Commandments and ask yourself, if I love God, if I am loving God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength, will I break those first four commandments? Will I have another God? Will I take his name in vain? Will I worship him in a way that he himself has not prescribed for me to worship? Will I profane the Sabbath day? Again, think about how that relates to your love for God. Of course, you know, if you say, I love God, you're not going to do those things. So those commandments, though they sound harsh, don't do this, don't do this. 
It's really just an expression of how you show your love to God. If you love your spouse, are you going to be pursuing another person? (laughs) No, of course not. You would not do that. And if I love my neighbor, will I break the last six? Will I steal from them? Will I lie to them? Will I murder them? (laughs) You know, again, it's, it's kind of funny the way I say it, but no, of course not. You wouldn't. If you loved your neighbor as yourself, you would not violate those final six commandments. And then finally, when it comes to the word neighbor, there are no loopholes. There's no small print that you could say, well, neighbor is defined in these 17 ways, but I've got an 18th way and I can, I can you know, not love this person. No, because neighbor, biblically speaking, is very broadly defined as anyone who comes across your path, who has a need. Jesus even says, love your enemies, so you have no loopholes. You can't say, well, they're my enemies, I can hate them. No, you have to love your enemies as well. So as we come now into this passage here in verses 11 through 14, this serves as a sort of transition passage in a sense. It marks the end of a larger section in Romans from 12 to the end of 13 that you can kind of, if you wanted to put a heading over it, you can put the heading of marks of the Christian community. This is how Christians ought to behave. And again, it all pours out of that those two verses in 12, 1 and 2, to present yourselves as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable or spiritual service of worship. Do not be conformed by this world, but have your mind renewed, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. All of that then flows out of, that, of, of those two verses. But these con- distinguishing marks that identify one as a Christian is one who exercises humility and uses their gifts to edify the whole church. We saw that in verses 3 through 8 of chapter 12. One who seeks to love all people, particularly those who are your enemies, those who curse you. Where he says, do not seek vengeance, leave vengeance to the Lord, but rather bless your enemies. Give them food, give them water, and by doing so you will heap coals on their head. It it convicts them of their own sin when you are kind to your enemies. Christian is also one who submits to the governing authorities as to God because God established the governing authorities. And then here, as we just saw last week, one who seeks to fulfill the law of love. And now it all comes to a culmination here in verses 11 through 14 as a Christian is one who knows that the time is near. And then because he knows that the time is near, he endeavors to walk properly, to walk as Christ would walk. And again, as I said earlier, we should never lose sight of this overarching principle in Romans 12, verses 1 and 2, to live a life of a living sacrifice to God. So as we come to the first, or the last, I should say the last four verses of Romans 13, Paul gives us some final exhortations based on our knowledge of what he calls the time. In verse 11, where he says, Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believe. So that phrase there, besides this, or if you have New King James or if you're using the NIV, it'll say and do this again, I think points us back to verses eight through ten. 
in Paul's command to fulfill the law of love. And he's saying, so with all that has been said so far, keeping all of that in mind, this idea of fulfilling the law of love, you know now the time. You know the time. Now he's like, what do you mean you know the time? Is it it's 9.50 in the morning? No, that's not what he's saying. It's not clock time, right? This is the word there for time is kairos. It's not clock time, but it means sort of like the proper time, the appointed time, uh, the age, the season that you're in. In other words, you know the season, you know the age. Paul here is calling us to be aware of the redemptive historical moment in which we are living, to be aware of our redemptive historical moment. Now you may ask, what is our redemptive historical moment? That's a good question. I'm glad someone asked that, and at least the person in my brain asked that question. According to the New Testament, we are in what is called the last days. The last days, Acts 2.17, where Paul is preaching to the, uh, the gathered people at Pentecost, and he gives that sermon, and he quotes from Joel chapter 2, which says, in the last days. And he's saying, this is the time that is being fulfilled, that prophecy is being fulfilled, We are in the last days. The coming of Jesus Christ inaugurated the last days. Now, we're all good Reformed folk here. We know that the last days is sort of like an overlap period, right? You've heard me say this before. The already, the not yet. So the the age to come has sort of broken into the current age. But there's an overlap, okay? So the two ages are sort of coexisting. We're in this already not yet period. So the new age is partially realized now. That's the already. And part of that is our salvation. We are justified. We are spiritually renewed. Yet we live in unredeemed flesh. That's the not yet. We haven't been, it hasn't been fully realized. And it gets fully realized later. That's the not yet. So the fact that Paul says you know the time. He is saying you know that we're in the last days. In other words, there's nothing left on God's to-do list, right? God's got an eschatological to-do list, and he's checking things off, okay? This, you know, the, you know, John the Baptist came, okay, he's the herald, okay, the Son of God came, and he provided salvation. Next thing is, oh, the return of Christ. That's the next thing on the list. There's nothing except the return of Christ on God's to-do list. So we are in the last days. That's why Paul then urges us to wake from sleep. Wake up. The hour has come. This is a call for vigilance. It is a call for diligence. We are in the last days, so stop sleepwalking. Stop lollygaggling. Lollygagging, not lollygaggling. (laughs) Stop being lazy. Shape up. Why, Paul? Because salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. And actually, it says our salvation is near. That's the literal rendering. So when Paul says our salvation, he is speaking of our ultimate salvation in Christ Jesus, which comes again at the return of Christ Jesus when the last days are done. Well, how do you know this? How do you know that's what he's talking about? Well, again, you have to consider the eschatological tone of this passage. Paul can't be referring to our justification. He's already talked about that in Romans chapter 3. We are justified by grace through faith in Christ. So he has to be referring to our glorification. 
And like everything else, our salvation has an already not yet aspect to it. In fact, it is not wrong to say we have been saved. That is in our justification. There's nothing more that needs to be done as far as being right with God. We have, we have been saved in our justification. It's once and done. But you could also say we are being saved through our sanctification as the Holy Spirit is working in us, conforming us more and more into the image of Christ as, he, as we uh, you know, grow from one level of glory to the next, to the next, because Christ and the Spirit are working in us. But then we could also say we will be saved. At the end, when Christ returns and we will be glorified, that final consummation of our salvation will be there. And you see that in the golden chain of salvation, right? In Romans chapter 8, those whom he foreknew, he called, those whom he called, he justified, those whom he justified, he glorified. So when Paul then urges us to wake from sleep, he is calling us to be alert, to be sober-minded, The time is near and we don't want to be caught napping. Sleeping here is being used metaphorically for being morally careless or morally lax. Okay, it's like the person who puts off to tomorrow what could be done today. Right, I I do that a lot. (laughs) I put off to tomorrow what could be done to today because I realize I've got... I got three or four hours tomorrow. I can get that done. So I put it off. But a person who is not lazy, a person who is not being lax, who's diligent, was okay, no, I can do it now. Let's just do it now. And then so on and so forth. Really what Paul is doing, he's really not saying anything different than what Jesus said in his Olivet Discourse. So keep your finger here in Romans 13 and turn to Romans, or not Romans, Matthew 24. So Matthew 24, starting in verse 36. Again, this is Jesus talking to his disciples. They're on the Mount of Olives. They ask him about the temple. And Jesus says, this temple that you see here before you will be destroyed. And his disciples are like, oh, that's some interesting news. Uh, can you tell us when that will happen and when the, when the time of your return is? And he goes into a nice long discourse here. And he has just finished talking about the signs of the end. He has just finished talking about his coming when he comes, uh, the Son of Man comes in the clouds with great glory. Then he talks about the lesson of the fig tree. When he says, when you see the fruit on the fig tree starting to grow, you know that the time is near. And then he says in verse 36, but concerning that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven nor the Son, but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark, and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then two men will be in the field. One will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one left. Therefore, stay awake. Sounds like Paul, right? Wake up. Stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, would he have stayed awake and would not have let the house be broken into? Therefore, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over his household, to give them their food at the proper time. 
Blessed is the servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that wicked servant says to himself, my master is delayed and begins to beat his fellow servants and eats and drinks with drunkards, the master of that servant will come on the day when he does not expect him and in an hour he does not know and will cut him in pieces and put him in with the hypocrites in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. One of the old weeping and gnashing of teeth passages. So after his warning his disciples to heed the lesson of the fig tree, he launches into this warning about nobody knowing the day or the hour. So in other words, you can see, you can have an idea that the day is near, that the time is near, but you don't know the exact moment. That's, when he said, that's why he says no one knows the day or the hour. Of course, if you're Harold Camping, I guess you can know the month and the year. But anyway, uh, no one knows the day or the hour. And since you don't know when Jesus will return, you need to keep watch and don't fall asleep. Salvation now is nearer than when we first believed, going back to Paul. But how does Paul know this since no one knows the day or the hour? Well, I don't, know, I don't need to know the exact day or hour of Jesus' return to know that my salvation is a day closer than it was yesterday, right? Salvation is nearer today on Sunday, June 13th, than it was on Saturday, June 12th. It is 24 hours nearer, right? Salvation is nearer now than what it was when you first believed. So the hour has come. You need to wake up. And it's interesting because in that parable there, Jesus you know, talks about the servants in the household. The ones who are diligent are the ones who are continually working. They're continually working because they don't know when Jesus or the master is going to return. And they're just like, well, I'm just going to be busy. So when Jesus comes, he's going to see me being busy. Whereas the others are like, well, he's going to be away for a while. I'm going to, I'll watch Matlock or I'll watch something on TV and I'll get to my chores later. And then all of a sudden here comes the master home and it's like, oh, I didn't start my chores yet because I was too busy watching reruns of Matlock on TV and now I'm busted. That's the point that Jesus is making and that's the point Paul is making. Don't be asleep. Don't be lazy. Be working. That's why he then goes on in verses 12 and 13, after emphasizing this redemptive historical moment, he continues in verse 12, the night is far gone, the day is at hand, so then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. So the night is far gone, it is well advanced, dawn is approaching, the time of sleep is nearly over, you need to wake up. Don't sleep past your alarm. How many people have slept past their alarm clocks? I've done that a few, t- <laughs> a few times, right? And you're like, oh, crap, it's late. That's, you don't want to be like that when the day of the Lord comes. The night of the past, redemptive historical age is nearing its completion. The time for action is now. And again, he says the day is at hand. Now, he's not just talking day as opposed to night as he's making that contrast here in this verse, he's also making a specific reference to the day of the Lord. And again, reinforcing uh, this idea that God's timing is not our timing, right? The day of the Lord is near from God's perspective. From our perspective, it has been at least 2,000 years. 
and it's continuing, but it is still near. The idea here that Paul is trying to get across here is this idea of the imminence of Christ's return. That is I-M-M-I-N-E-N-C-E. The nearness of his return. The night is far gone, the day is at hand. Again, remember what I said earlier. There's only one thing left on God's to-do list, on his day timer, and that is the return of Christ. That is the last thing there on his eschatological day timer. The present evil age is passing. The age to come is nearing. So then the implication is, what, is what, ought, what kind of people ought we to be? That's the point Paul is trying to make here. What kind of people ought we to be? We ought to be people who cast off the works of darkness. That word cast off, apotiphany, throw off, be done with, take off, lay down. In other words, be done with the works of darkness. To have nothing anymore to do with them. Now he'll give some examples of the works of darkness in verse 13. But instead here he encourages us to put on the armor of light. Now interestingly enough, that word for armor is not armor. It's actually like tools or instruments. Pick up the tools, uh, the equipment of light. So it could be armor, but it just means the tools or instruments or equipment of light. And this is, again, something Paul has urged. We see this take off, put on, put off language a lot in Paul's letters. In Colossians 3, in verses 5 through 10, uh, Paul tells them there, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. It's, you know, the same way, put off the deeds of darkness. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. This is really just a call then for Christians to live out their salvation. If you remember in our study through Romans 6, where Paul says, shall we sin, continue to sin so that the grace of God may abound? And he says, no, no. How can we who have been raised with Christ, how can we who are in Christ continue to sin? It's not, it's a non-starter for Paul. We have not been saved so that we can live with impunity, so that we can just live for our own selves. We have not been freed from the slavery of our bondage to sin so that we can live any way we want. We've been freed from our bondage to sin so we can serve Christ, so we can serve God and live obediently. We've basically just switched slavery from sin to righteousness now. Sin was our master, but no more. We have been freed to we have been freed to follow Christ, not our own pursuits. We have been purchased. We've been bought. So we were again, we we're in a slavery to sin. Christ comes and buys us out of that slavery to serve him with his blood, right? He bought us by his blood, redeemed us by his blood. We are now been redeemed and purchased by a new master. 
So we need to put off the old way of living. We don't do things that way anymore. We now need to live the new way. We need to put on the equipment or the instruments of light. We need to equip ourselves. As Paul will say in Ephesians, we need to put on the whole armor of God. And again, our ethics has a... I've been using this word. I, I, I figure I was allowed to use this word because I remember once somebody in a Bible study said that Reverend Vucic used the word eschatological all the time. So you guys know what it means. So I figure I, I, was, I was avoiding using that word because I was taught in seminary, don't use big fancy theological words unless you explain them. But I'm going to start using eschatological. It just means end times. But our ethics has an eschatological dimension to it. We are to cast off the works of darkness, for the night is far gone. The time for our wanton sinfulness is over, so we need to wake up for our moral slumber and live right. So then Paul commands us in verse 13, let us walk properly, as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy. So we're Christians, right? We need to look and we need to act the part. I remember somebody saying to me one time, Linda might remember this too, because I think it was in a small group setting. But, you know, if you were charged for the crime of being a Christian, would they find any evidence of it? You know, you know the, the idea here is we need to act like Christians. You know, we haven't been saved again to live any way we want. And Paul is saying, look, the time is near. Don't. Think that you've got time to clean up your act. You need to live and walk properly. Walk as in the daytime. In other words, walk in such a way that everything you do, as if everything you do could be seen by others. The old saying goes, the true test of a man's character is what he does when no one is watching. And that's right. Because even when no one is watching, God is watching. Nothing is hidden from his sight. So Paul here lists three pairs of works of darkness, uh, sins of excess, orgies and drunkenness, sins of sex, sexual immorality and sensuality, and sins of attitude. So sins of excess, sins of sex, sins of attitude, quarreling and jealousy. And the person who is walking properly is in the daytime doesn't walk in these sinful patterns anymore. And again, this goes all the way back to that ethical foundation in Romans 12, verses 1 and 2. The person who is a living sacrifice of thankfulness to God wouldn't or shouldn't even entertain such things. The Christian who is asleep, who engages in the works of darkness, is the one who is letting the world shape him or her into his mold. Again, that's what Paul says, right? Don't be conformed by this age, by this world, right? There are plenty of Christians out there who think that coming to Christ is like getting the fire insurance, but, and then they can just live any way they want. That is worldly thinking. That is having your mind conformed by the world. Paul says, don't. Let it be transformed. So how does the Christian then walk as in the daytime? How does the Christian wake from sleep and cast off the works of darkness? Look at verse 14. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. So how does one then put on the Lord Jesus Christ? Okay, that's the next question. 
So how do I walk in the daytime? Well, you put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, how do I put on the Lord Jesus Christ? What does it mean to put on the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, in one sense, putting on Christ is parallel to putting on the armor of light that Paul says in verse 12. Okay, so it can be seen as a sense, in a sense, an imitation of Christ doing what he would do. The old, you know, what would Jesus do thing? There's nothing really wrong with what would Jesus do? Uh, Sanctification can be summarized, as I've said before, the working out of what the Holy Spirit is working in you. So as we're being sanctified, we are basically, you know, we have been justified. So that's our position. We are righteous in God's sight by justification. But our lives are a mess. So sanctification is the process of the Holy Spirit working in us to get our lives to then slowly and surely match our position in Christ. Philippians 2, one of my favorite passages on this. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Now, if I stop there... It would sound like a works kind of righteousness. Work it out, work it out. But then he says in verse 13, For it is God who is working in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So in other words, the command is not so much, you know, white knuckle your Christian life. It's just don't get in the way of the Holy Spirit half the time. (laughs) Don't hinder the Spirit. Don't quench the Spirit's work in your life by doing some of these other things that you've done in your past life. There's a reason why Jesus of Nazareth lived and walked this earth for 33 years. Yes, he was fulfilling all righteousness so that the law could then be fulfilled and he could fulfill the covenant of works that Adam failed to keep. But he was also, in a sense, providing an example for us to follow, not repeating his saving and atoning work, not that we are to perform the miracles of Christ and walk on water and die on a cross, but living a life wholly dedicated to God. That was Christ. He lived a life wholly dedicated to God. Why did he do half the things he did? In a a way to show how to live a life wholly dedicated to God. And there are a number of passages that call us to imitate Christ. Paul says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Paul says, be imitators of God in Ephesians 5.1. But, favorite word. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ also includes a close association with Christ or union with Christ. So be so clothed with Christ that people see Christ in us, the way we walk, the way we talk, the way we behave, etc. That this refers to union with Christ, consider what Paul says in Galatians 3.27. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. As many of you as were baptized in Christ, you have put on Christ. So Paul connects baptized with Christ with putting on Christ. And again, I refer back to Romans 6, where Paul asks, how can we who died to sin still live in it? And he answers in verses 3 and 4. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? We were were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life, that union with Christ. We have been baptized into Christ. 
We have been buried with him in his death. We've been raised with him in his resurrection. And now we walk in newness of life. So baptism into Christ is being united with Christ. And then finally, note that it's put on the Lord Jesus Christ. We have not been freed from sin again to live for ourselves. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. So this call to put on the Lord Jesus Christ can also be seen as a call to recommit yourselves to the fact that Jesus is Lord. Now, as usually is the case, there is never a command in the Bible to put on something without the corresponding command to put off something. And in this case, Paul here says, make no provision for the flesh. In other words, don't feed the flesh. Don't feed the flesh. That word provision, pronoia, means like foresight, caring, attending to, providing for. If you go to the zoo, right, you'll see signs on the cages. Don't feed the animals. Why aren't you to feed the animals? Because they don't want the animals hooked on your human food, for one thing. But then it also starts to get the animals causing to beg for food. If you have a dog, we have a dog, right? Many of you people know we have a dog in the house. And we tried not to feed her table scraps, but then she gives us that look. And then we can't help but feed her table scraps. And then now that just encourages her all the more to come to the table. We have fed the beast, and now she keeps coming back to the table. The same thing with the flesh. You cannot just feed the flesh and hope to control the flesh. Because if you feed the flesh, it'll keep coming back for more. It'll start begging for food and you'll continually start feeding the flesh. Here, in this case, don't feed the flesh because it only wants more. And the flesh here, of course, means our sinful nature. Um, that which Paul struggles with in Romans 7. It's just, you know, the, the more you feed the flesh, then you'll start falling back into those sinful patterns that you are trying to put off, Right? Now, this is particularly true with addictive types of behavior, whether it's like pornography or alcoholism or gambling or other kinds of substances. You can't toy around with those things. You can't just do a little bit and then assume that you can control it because the minute you start feeding it a little bit, you'll start feeding it more and more and more. That's the nature of addiction. But it goes for other sins as well. You can't wean yourself off these sins. You have to make no provision. You have to starve it, basically, is what he's saying. Right? What does Jesus say when he says, you know, he's talking about you shall not lust after a woman. You know, just because you said you can't have committed adultery, you shouldn't lust after a woman. And he says, if your eye causes you to sin, what do you do? Pluck it out. Right? If your hand causes you to sin, you, you know, you chop it off. Drastic measures. Right? Not literally walking around with one hand and one eye. Okay, you're not going to be holy because you have one hand and one eye. The point is, you need to take drastic measures with these sins. The flesh is like a hungry animal. The more you feed it, the more it wants. There's an interesting story about St. Augustine with this passage, because this passage was very instrumental in his conversion. He was struggling. Of course, his mother was a Christian. Um, prayed for him a lot and he went from you know he went through various stages in his life from 
uh, you know, he was raised as a Catholic or Christian at the time. Then he went into Manichaeism, and he went all, you know, then he pursued a course of philosophy. And he was, there's stories told he's in his garden, and he hears over the, the barrier in the garden next to him, kids playing. And he was really struggling in his soul. He was, I think he was trying to be a Christian, but he was struggling with his own. He was a very lusty man, okay, Augustine. He was a, he battled, he had many uh, wives and children out of wedlock, and he, he struggled with sexual sin and all these things. And he was really struggling, and he hears these kids playing. They're singing a little ditty called Toled Lege, which means pick up and read. And Paul, or Augustine, had the scriptures next to him. He turned, you know, he did one of these, you know, opens the Bible, boom, and he hits Romans 13, 13 and 14, where he says, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh. And at that point, he was really convicted and pricked in his heart, and he began to be more serious about his Christian life, realizing that he could not continue to live as he was living and continue to assume that he could be good and, and right with God. So that is Romans 13, 11 through 14. Next time, we'll begin looking at Romans 14. I'm pretty sure we can get through the first 12 verses of that chapter, Lord willing, next week on the 20th. <clears throat>